You have a window, right? Well, if you do, look outside. What do you see? Chances are you probably see some trees, some grass, maybe some insects, squirrels, rabbits. Maybe you see some birds. Maybe you see other people or even dogs. What if I told you that every single creature you are looking at is directly related to you? Seems crazy, right? Well, it, it's not crazy. The grass you see, the weeds you see, the trees you see, the birds you see, the squirrels you see, the people you see, the dogs you see, all of them share a significant number of genes with you. Whether you like it or not, everyone on the planet is distant cousins. And every living thing, from the small shards of grass on your lawn to the dogs you see across the street, is a distant relative of yours. Welcome to the insanity of evolutionary biology. Evolution is a very, very crazy topic. It seems completely inconceivable that we share over half our genes with a banana, yet alone 99%, 98.8% to be exact, of our genes with a chimpanzee. But yet, all of that is somehow true. Viewing our insane relativity to other life on Earth, our immediate questions are these. How did this happen, and why is this happening? In this episode, we will convey the biological law of evolution and discuss the main two theories that attempt to explain evolution. The theory of natural selection, or the theory of evolution by natural selection, and the theory of evolution by sexual selection. If you listen to episode two of the podcast, you would know that Earth's life is anywhere from 3.7 billion to around 4.1 billion years old. That's at least the general scientific consensus. It lingers mainly around 3.9 billion years. But of course, all science is subject to critique and to alterations. So 3.9 billion years isn't the exact number yet. Of course, the plus minus is relatively high still. Life at this time was extremely simple as conveyed in the last video or last uh, podcast, last episode. It was extremely simple, prokaryotic, pro equals, prokaryotic equals no envelope enclosed nucleus, as we learned in our seventh grade biology class. Um, and the life at this time generated energy through only the intake of the naturally occurring macromolecules that created them. So basically they just uh, consumed amino acids and then converted the energy and well, converted the energy into energy, well, converted the molecules into energy, and then the product would be like methane and other uh, greenhouse gases. Um, the simple microscopic unicellular organisms of that day were without a question far less sophisticated and complex than even the most basic cells in our body, like even the bacterium of today are m far, far more complex than the simplistic life of that day. I mean, one example, well, like looking at it, the, the life of that day was just like at the very 
like the complete lowest level of complexity. I mean, all they all, they were just basically a membrane. Uh, they were basically just DNA, or well, actually probably RNA, surrounded by a membrane, and that would probably be it. Now this, they obviously didn't have need a host to survive, so they were they were technically considered life, but. Unless you're talking viruses, this is pretty much the simplest form of life that we have. And, I mean, there's still life around that's similar to that. I mean, even the bacterium of, the, of today are relatively uh, relatively simple compared to, like, at least compared to our eukaryotic cells, which eukaryotic is basically means that there is a membrane-enclosed, an envelope-enclosed nucleus. Or, like, the DNA is enclosed in a membrane, which, obviously, the membrane that I'm speaking of is the nucleus of the, uh, of the cell. But, yeah, um, the simple microscopic unicellular organisms of that day were, they were, they were very simple. I mean, even our blood cells are more complex than that. This fundamental evolving complexity we have has... The evolve the evolving complexity we have seen over time led us to the great theory or concept or fact of evolution, for that matter, Darwinian evolution. Evolution by natural selection, which is the first of these two theories that are intertwined with each other, but we will still um, we will still convey today. Evolution by natural selection is the process by which most organisms are likely to have evolved throughout organismic history, because that is a word. Organismic is apparently a word. I actually, I was typing the guide to this, and I just spelled out organismic, and apparently it was a word. I ended up searching it up, and somehow Merriam-Webster has organismic. It literally means relating to organisms. So I just stayed with it, and I thought I'd tell the story a little bit. Uh, the theory basically states that an individual organism that has genes more suitable for the environment they reside in would be more likely to reproduce and continue their genes than an individual organism of the same species that has traits less suitable for their environment. So basically, whatever is more adapted to their the environment uh, at which they reside would be more likely to survive than an, than an individual organism that doesn't have those traits that are more that are more adapted to that environment. So basically if if human or okay okay basically it's basically this taking it, taking an SAT taking the SAT if you score a 1000 you are less likely to get into a prime college like a Harvard University than someone who scored a 1560. Now that's just the environment you live in. But that same person, that same person might, wa might be terrible at plumbing. That same person who scored a 1560 might be terrible at plumbing while the person who scored a 1,000 is great at plumbing. So again, this is this completely relates to your own environment. I mean, it's not necessarily natural selection, but I think it's a great example of how the process would work. I mean, 
put a puts put a brainiac with a 1560 SAT score in, in, as a plumber and if they if they first of all if they hate to plumb if they hate plumbing if they hate the job they'll be terrible at it and if they are very weak and don't like literally don't even use their arms at all except to write uh, except to write and to perform math equations, they probably will not be great for that environment. Now, on the other hand, if you have a plumber who scored a 1,000 on their SAT, bring, putting them in the Harvard, putting them in Harvard, and uh, having them study astrophysics would probably not work too well for them. So again, that's it's all about the environment. It's all about your environment. So I'm actually going to give some, I mean, I'm not going to use this as my only example. I'm going to give other examples, of course, because let's just be honest, an SAT score and, and plumbing, it probably has nothing to do with natural selection. So we're just going to, we're going to use some real examples. Actually, you probably know at least one of these examples for sure. So we're going to start with that one. One of the flagship examples of natural selection that makes this seemingly outlandish theory very easy to understand, at least when I learned about this, when I learned about it in freshman year, would be the story of the post-industrial revolution peppered moth. The peppered moth is normally a white organism with black spots that easily camouflages itself against the common, commonly occurring lichen-covered trees of Great Britain, there is a genetic mutation in the population of the peppered moth that causes some of the individual moths to have wings nearly completely black in color. So obviously with the this polka dot white, white and black lichen, the black moths wouldn't survive at all. At all. Because the lich, their natural mechanism against... Their natural mechanism against uh, predators is just thrown off the table. I mean, their that's the their camouflage keeps birds from eating them specifically. So obviously, this this mutation did not work that well. I mean, this mutation it was not something that was very adapted to their environment to the moth's environment. So obviously, the black moth population was quite low at the time. But it was still it was still in the species. It was still within the species. It's just that there were not too many um, carriers of it at that time. So this is this is pre-industrial revolution. These wings obviously they don't blend in well at all. So the moths were far more susceptible to being eaten by predators, specifically birds, like I said earlier. Normally there would be far more peppered moths than monochromatic moths. They're melanic. They they call them melanic wings, melanic moths, but I'm just going to call them monochromatic moths because they're one specific color. But in 19th century England, this was not the case. The Industrial Revolution began automation in England, and the main producer of energy that allowed for this automation to occur was, of course, coal. The pollutants produced by this crazy chemical, this crazy natural resource we call coal that still is somehow prevalent in today's society um killed off the lichens that the peppered moths used to camouflage exposing and darkening the tree bark the dar already dark 
tree bark below it. As a result, the non-mutated moths were completely exposed. So the peppered moths were completely exposed and had absolutely no natural barriers, natural camouflaging to their predators. Because of this, they died off quite, quite quickly. But the melanic or the melanic or monochromatic moths, on the other hand, they didn't do too bad. They did do they did quite well. The dark the dark bark below the lichen that had just died was the perfect camouflage for these already dark winged moths, winged moths. Because of this, they the lichen covered trees were the pepper moths um the pepper moths camouflage, but now the black moths camouflage is the dark coal ruined uh trees basically the the dark bark of um the trees in in 19th century britain this resulted in a vast increase in population for the melanic moths while a vast decrease in population because of the exposure now for the peppered moths because they have again like i said earlier they have absolutely no camouflage while a campaign in the mid-20th century in the efforts to reduce air pollution allowed for the pepper moths to again reclaim their reign over genetic mutation, this example is still one of the greatest examples of well-observed evolution by natural selection. Basically, it shows that the more environmentally suited traits will survive and reproduce for the longest. And again, mutations. That's how it happened. Mutations. Another example of natural selection, specifically relating to human evolution, this was one that I thought was quite interesting, at least to me, uh, would have been the genetic discrepancy between ethnic peoples of the Himalayas versus peoples of the lowlands. So someone who frequently lives... Like Himalayan... Okay, Himalayans, Himalayan natives, they live their entire lives in regions that are very high in altitude, specifically around 3,000, 4,000 meters, and obviously much higher than that because, I mean, Mount Everest is nearly 8,000 meters tall. I think it's around, like, 7,800 meters tall, which is incredibly tall. And because of this, they live in extremely low oxygen environments, at least compared to someone living in coastal Florida because, I mean... When you're living 10 feet above sea level, it doesn't really compare to living 17,000 feet above sea level. I mean, go to the uh, go to the Alma in the Atacama Desert in Chile, and you have to wear you have to wear an oxygen you literally have to wear an oxygen mask, not not a mask, but you have to wear like those prongy things that supply oxygen. Which, that's that's pretty horrible. That is, it's only 5,000 meters too. So compared to so Florida, ten feet compared to seventeen thousand feet in the Atacama Desert is there. There's a significant difference because of the environment that the Himalayans lived in. A mutation that significantly lowers the amount of hemoglobin in your blood, like in humans' blood, arose. The lower amounts of hem hemoglobin meant 
that the prevalence of chronic, chronic altitude sickness, or Monge's disease, I think I'm saying it correctly, is significantly lower. Being that the environment these Himalayan natives lived in had lower oxygen levels, this mutation allowed for carriers to, of course, live longer and reproduce more often. The proportion of Himalayan natives with this mutation would gradually increase, of course, by generation. This, in turn, was natural selection at work. It's, again, it's quite self-explanatory. I mean, the mutation, it was already there, it was already in the environment. I mean, these mutations, they occur completely naturally. They, like, DNA is not perfect when we... Sometimes mutations will occur when our cells are multiplying. I mean, it's basically like a cancer cell. I mean, like, look at a cancer cell. It, it normally takes around five to seven mutations for a cancer cell to form. And, I mean, cancer cells are forming everywhere in your bodies right now. Like, they're forming in my body right now. I can tell you right now there's probably a cancer cell about to form but get killed off or maybe not get killed off. But the thing about cancer is that it's even those small amount of mutations makes their cells remarkably different than their normal cell counterparts. I mean, you look at cancer cells, some of them are incredibly large. Some of them, they divide constantly. They, they divide constantly because the telomerase doesn't break down. The telomerase in their, um, in their cells, it just doesn't break down. So they can continuously uh, reproduce without having to ever without having to ever die basically unless unless they as long as they have the nutrients they'll never have to die they'll never die but the thing about cancer cells they're just they're different they're just remarkably different only through a few mutations so i mean the mutations are already there now you just have to wait for them to multiply more if they're more adapted to their environment i mean not specifically cancer cells necessarily but if these if the organism is more adapted to its environment it is more likely to survive. And like with the Himalayans, obviously if you live at 4,000 meters your entire life and you don't have any of that oxygen support, you're probably going to die pretty quickly. I mean, at 5,000 meters, it is required you have an oxygen tank for the most part. Like if you, if you lived in low altitude and low elevation regions your entire life, probably. But because this, because this high altitude mutation this limit, limited hemoglobin mutation was so worked so well in the Himalayan environment, it was more prominent. And there you go. That's basically natural selection running its course. So now we're going to go to the second theory of evolution. The th second, the second, the second base, like the second concept of the theory of evolution. I mean, there, there's natural selection and there's sexual selection. So we're going to be covering sexual selection now. It basically is a theory that explains some of the seriously crazy and unorthodox mating strategies of some of these animals on Earth, including humans, of course. Yes, including humans. While natural selection deals with an individual's suitability with their environment, sexual selection deals with specifically a male's ability to mate with females, and sometimes a female's ability to mate with males, as you'll see in my human example, and therefore to reproduce, reproduce, and transfer their genes to another generation. 
Sexual selection occurs almost exclusively in males because of a principle called Batesman's principle, in which female reproduction is limited by their ability to nourish and produce large and strong gametes, or sex gametes or sex cells, while male reproduction is limited only by their access to mating with females. I mean, for example, with the humans, it's about for a female, it's about one egg every 28 days. And for males, I think it's like 5 million sperm every day. <laughs> so <laughs> there's obviously an incredible discrepancy there. <laughs> Let's not even get started. That is a seriously large and massive discrepancy. But also a an egg is thousands, I mean, probably thousands of times larger than a sperm cell. So obviously it requires a lot more energy than a than a male sex cell or sperm. The common competition between males to mate may result in some genetic changes aimed specifically at sexual reproduction, and this is the primary basis of sexual selection. Again, I'm just going to give two examples surrounding sexual selection, and both of them are quite freaky, to be honest. I mean, yeah, both of them are quite, um, quite unusual. It, it really does represent how crazy things, how crazy some of the stuff that happens in this universe is. Like, just crazy. <laughs> there are many interesting and freaky traits of some male organisms that are strong, that are strong examples of sexual selection. One example would be in the male peacock. This is by far the best example. The male peacock is well known to have incredibly beautiful, luminant, iridescent, and flamboyant feathers that drastically decreases the male's uh, chances of survival. Like, the, in terms of survival, Having incredibly flamboyant and colorful things, uh, colorful feathers, is probably the last thing that you want to have. Camouflage is very important. But the purpose of the, for this terrible trait is only to mate. When male peacocks compete for a female peacock, they expand their famous feathers into a fan shape and shake these feathers, basically producing a rattling noise characteristically intended to get the fem female's attention. The female peacock will examine the feathers of the competing male peacock, peacocks very closely, choosing one to mate with. The better the male's feathers, the better his chances of reproducing more than his male counter uh, competitors. So basically... If the genetics supply really beautiful, illuminated, well, really beautiful, incredible feathers that like rep that completely decrease your chances of survival, you'll probably reproduce more because that's that's that just that's just great. <laughs> that just makes so much sense. <laughs> Sexual selection is fun to me because some of this stuff. I mean, I didn't. I only gave the peacock, and I'm only I'm gonna give peacocks. Uh, and humans as an example but there are some 
there are some really weird examples. I, I suggest that you guys look up some of the examples of sexual selection because <laughs> just kind of crazy. They're, all of them are just kind of wacko. But again, we have to give an example of human sexual selection. Sexual selection, while harder to discern, can be applied to many human traits, including male and female characteristics. For physical traits, physical sexual specific traits, the males, or, and for males, sex specific traits that are important to female mates would include broad shoulders, uh, beards, and masculine facial features. I presume that masculine and feminine facial features, at least to my human audience, would be quite self-explanatory. I don't really know how exactly to explain the difference between male and female facial features. I I just, I I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I can tell it myself because I'm a human being, but like, I can't, I literally cannot uh, discuss it. Like, I, I, I can't explain it. So, um, I'm just going to say that it's self-explanatory. Um, for women, sex-specific traits that are important to male mates would be broad hips, large breasts, and feminine facial features. Again, self-explanatory kind of stuff right here. But yeah, so, it's when it comes to physical traits, pretty much everything that is sexualized in society today is would be considered... Um, a, a sex-specific trait that is uh, attractive to the opposite sex. Another core characteristic, though, of human sexual selection has far less to do with the mating, or with far less to do with physical features and more with emotional features. So it is easy to examine a peacock's mating ritual because male peacocks mate many times each mating season and because... Peacocks, I'm pretty sure peacocks do not feel love. I'm pretty sure they don't experience the same complex emotional bonds with other peacocks, at least in the way that humans do. Human mating rituals seem to have much more to do with the person rather than the mating. Think of human society today, for example. Mating more looks far more like connecting and bonding with another and eventually reproducing rather than discerning appealing physical traits of one another. This love-based mating ritual of humans is what makes our species, and honestly, all apes and even dogs, uh, for example, so unique. We value the bond over the sex. That is complex and incredible, and that is human sexual selection. Anyways, evolution is a crazy, 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 crazy topic. I, I mean, there is a lot more that we 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 need to know about. I mean, it, we obviously know that evolution is a law. Like, it's not, it's not, there's no question about whether it's fundamental existence is a law. Like, it, it should be considered at least fundamentally the same as gravity. I mean, we don't even have, we don't even have a fully strong theory of gravity yet i mean the the concept of gravity like its existence is there just like evolution's existence is there but we don't know what it is like we don't completely know 
the process and like the circumstances yet. So because of this, and even gravity is, but not on this level, evolution is a hotly debated scientific subject that seems completely inexplicable to many. But once you delve deeper into the evolutionary process, you see that it is really not that difficult to understand and that it does not deserve the controversy it receives. So, to all the people denying fundamental evolution out there, I ask you, please, research. I ask you to please research evolution for yourself. Do not go onto a a Christian apologetic site. Don't go on to Answers with Genesis and ask them about evolution because they're not going to tell you the truth. They have a they are very well known for having a low factuality rating on multiple different fact-checking sources and multiple different science sources. So I suggest that instead of looking at biased and non-factual uh cr- creation research organizations, I hope that you look at science-based research organizations. I mean, there are a billion of them. I mean, if you subscribe to Scientific American, you'll probably see a lot of stuff on evolution. So, I mean, there are a million of them. Just try to search it up. Look at research papers. Research papers are probably the most interesting thing about it because you get to see the primary, like, fundamental analysis of evolution through the actual scientist perspective and if you really want to like delve into evolution and learn about it read the origin of species by charles darwin the founder of evolution but yeah yeah anyways thank you all for listening uh i hope you all have a good morning a good afternoon a good after a good a good after evening a good evening or night. See you all next week.